What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. A damning report just came out about London's Metropolitan Police Force, highlighting systemic homophobia, misogyny, and racism, all hallmarks of a culture of bullying and impunity that we see in police forces around the world. But that's not even mentioning the rape and murder that led to the inquiry into the police force. Our guest this morning is James Brownsell, a freelance journalist and former managing editor of The New Arab and editor at Al Jazeera English, where for full disclosure, he worked with yours truly about a decade ago. His latest piece is an op-ed for the Middle East Eye headlined, London's Metropolitan Police Must Be Disbanded. Thanks for joining us, James. No, thanks for having me, Jesse. Really pleased to be here. So I don't know if you know this, but many reform-minded folks here in the U.S. look to Europe for better models of policing where, in general, police kill fewer people than the U.S., carry guns less frequently than here in the U.S., and far fewer people are locked up. So, James, before we get into the findings of the report and the nitty-gritty of that, can you just give us some kind of context for what the Metropolitan Police Force looks like and does on a daily basis? Like, let's assume we're starting from scratch how old is the police force? Do they carry guns? Do they have a heavier and more aggressive presence in poor communities and communities of color? So I think for a lot of people traveling from England to the States are shocked when they see the police on the streets over there with you guys, right? The, the, the guns, the, the, the military style uh, uh, policing. And it is a bit of a shock because over here in the UK, we've for 200 years, Metropolitan Police has been around and they've successfully for most of that time cultivated this public image of the friendly neighborhood Bobby on the beat. I got him. Um, someone who is trusted, pillar of the community, all round good guy. Um, and that's that's part of this like 1950s nostalgia of what Britain was once upon a time that it obviously never was for people who weren't landowners. <laughs> you know? uh, um, so the Metropolitan Police have, have pioneered policing in the UK for, for a long time. But in general, in general, right, police here don't carry guns, right? The police here are not necessarily to be messed with. No one thinks of them as 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 your friendly neighborhood copper anymore. Right? But it's not at the same militaristic level as you guys have over there. There are elite units, of course, elite units, in inverted commas, armed units, but the Metropolitan Police has evolved so much over, I think it's about 180 years, maybe 190 years, whereby they're not just the police of the capital city anymore, right? We're talking about 34,000 officers, and while city policing is one part of their thing, that there are agencies under the Metropolitan Police for uh, national counterterrorism, uh, for diplomatic protection. But it's it's enormous, enormous uh, organization, totally nebulous, with so many different dozens of departments, each with their own cultures and hierarchy and empire building, you know. And that's and these little shadowy corners that allow this sort of toxic cultures to thrive. Because uh, can you imagine trying to trying to provide any sort of meaningful oversight or accountability in an organization like that with 
with scopes that are so broad and across so many varied levels of national security, it's it's impossible. It's become this huge, huge organization with responsibilities and remits way beyond the city limits. You know, <laughs> and, and it's become its own totally uh, out of control beast uh, with, with no website. Just one one last piece of getting to know getting to know the Met a little bit more. What kind of communities are they known for now policing more of? Right. I, I just want to be able to understand this for context for our listeners in the U.S. Police are much more highly concentrated in neighborhoods where there are poorer people, where there are larger numbers of people of color and black people. What does that look like in London? Of course, and it's, it's the same pattern repeated over here. You know, communities of color, poorer people, working class people. You got the, you know, the council estates, the equivalent of all your guys' projects. All of these places where there's social deprivation, where there's need, where there's poverty, it, it, it goes hand in hand with, with with an increased police presence because that's what they do. Right? That's exactly right. Regardless of where we're talking about. So before we get into the report, which we will kind of dive into some of the details of, can you tell us about some of the pieces that led the report to be commissioned? I'm particularly thinking of the officers that had earned themselves some very rough nicknames. What, is it, what does it say, right? What does it say about the detective skills right, of London's finest? Right? You've, got, you've got, I want to say, 34,000 police officers in this organization. Right. 7,000 of them, more than 7,000 are detectives. I don't think we're talking about Sherlock Holmes here. Do you? Right? <laughs> I don't want to make this sound flippant by, by, by speaking about it this way on the way into it, but, but this woman was Sarah Everard, right? 33-year-old 30, uh, marketing executive. Right? Walking home one night, stopped by this guy, showed her, her his police badge, identified himself as a police officer, uh, you know, said you shouldn't be alone at night, sort of thing, and went on to uh, rape and strangle and kill her. Sarah Everard, 33. And this was in 2021? Uh, yes, that's right. Now, um, it turned out from WhatsApp chats that had been released that his workmates had nicknamed him the rapist. I mean, these people are trained detectives, right? They're, they're, and this isn't ringing any alarm bells? It's not triggering any red flags? These guys are, I mean, what are these guys doing with their jobs, right? One of Britain's worst known sex offenders as a police officer uh, and that's only been uh, really broken in the, in the past few months as well maybe a year or so ago David Carrick um it was also in the same armed unit as Wayne Cousins the officer who, who killed Sarah Everard uh David Carrick pleaded guilty in January to uh, 71 sexual offenses and uh, and yeah it turns out that his workmates had nicknamed him bastard Dave because of his fondness for cruelty and in the report it comes out saying that the his fellow officers are saying that you know we didn't call him bastard Dave because he was bad to women. We just we just thought he was overall you know cruel, mean, horrible. <laughs> so, that doesn't make it better. We are in conversation with James Brownsell, a British freelance journalist whose latest piece is headlined "London's Metropolitan Police Must Be Disbanded." It's about a new report commissioned by the government itself about extreme abuses within London's metropolitan police force. So, James, I just want to clarify when we're talking about this officer nicknamed Bastard Dave, who was sentenced last January, his colleagues are familiar with the cruelty that he was dishing out, right? And at this point, they're all in good shape, right? No punishments for them? We have to understand, you know, these people are, are just, just, you know, lone wolves, bad apples, you know, that no one could possibly tell that they were 
were wrong. Uh, why should anyone else suffer from any sort of maddening incompetence and neglect of, of duties? Yeah, no, 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 none of the other guys have uh, faced any punitive action, it would seem. So obviously these cases of these two officers are tragic and upsetting and, and extremely violent. In particular, the rape and murder of Sarah Everard led to this report that just came out. Can you talk about the process that the report went through? Yeah, well, from, from the death of Sarah Everard, and that was horrifying enough right, for, for anyone. When the details came out, they held a, there was a vigil that was being that was called. And hundreds of women, mostly women, gathered to pay their respects um, in a park in London, a very peaceful vigil. It was during the COVID crisis with lockdown laws and the police went in and uh, beat up loads of women and arrested a whole bunch of them in the, in a way that was in front of all the press cameras. They should have been there handing out tissues, right, to let people grieve. And they turned out, this is a vigil, a serving police officer who used his badge and, and card to identify himself and gain trust be prior, as, as a way in to rape and murder this woman. And so, yeah. So the police came, claimed it was this, you know, just enforcing lockdown laws. Um, but they clearly saw it as an anti-police protest and they were going to bust some heads. And the, the reaction to the murder combined with the reaction to the vigil held following her murder was what led to um, the commissioning of what's called the Baroness Casey Review. Uh, Louise Casey um, was asked to uh, investigate the culture and ethics and standards of the Metropolitan Police. And she delivered this week 363 pages of a damning assessment on every level that the force is institutionally racist, homophobic, sexist, and, you know, awful. And it's not the first one. In 1993, Stephen Lawrence was a, a young black guy, 18 years old, got killed by, in a racially motivated attack. And it wasn't until 1999 that McPherson report came out to say yes the handling of the investigation was proved to Metropolitan Police to be institutionally racist and that was in 1999 and we keep seeing these things and they keep saying oh it's it's just a bad apple oh it's one one there's a lone wolf you can't you can't you know it's no bad thing it's just this is one one off here and there you can't judge the whole by by the one but it keeps happening and it keeps happening and it keeps happening and we're all tired that's the voice of James Brownsell, a freelance journalist in Britain whose latest piece is about a damning report commissioned by the government on the London's Metropolitan Police Force. We'll get into the findings of the report in just one second, but one last question. Who is Louise Casey, and is there anything we should know about her in the context of this report? Well, um, a, a, a baroness. She was a, a, a government official for years and years. She has commissioned several reports for subsequent governments. Uh, she had been the head of Shelter. It's a, a big um, homelessness charity. She is a, an established administrator, for a better term, I guess, uh, uh, within the within various government departments and, and elsewhere. She produced a report uh, for uh, David Cameron, came back saying that the people who arrive in the country should take an integration oath a, a pledge as part of their, their their being accepted into into the UK. So she's not some you know crazy lefty. 
<laughs> it's, 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 it's a, you know, an establishment figure. This isn't, you know, some crazy anarchist saying, you know, let's break the police up. This is, this is someone who's got, what, she's a, she's a dame, God's sake. <laughs> so all that in context, um, you've mentioned that the report that she published that is 363 pages long has damning information that charges the Metropolitan Police Force with homophobia and misogyny, um, racism. Let's talk about some of those actual findings. What, what are specific findings that, that stand out to you in that report that you'd like to speak on? When something like this comes out, saying about how bad a company, an organization, a government department or whatever is, part of you wants to think that they can't all be that bad. Probably wants to almost believe the bad apple stuff, right? And so you, you think, well, what? There must have been people who spoke out. There must have been. What happened? What? What's going on with their, like, their grievance procedures? But um, you know, misconduct cases take more uh, upwards, on average, of four hundred days to be resolved. Uh, that, that's that's more than a year before it gets even to a to a proper sort of charge, you know, with, within the thing. Most allegations relate to um, uh, management decisions, uh, but also uh, bullying and uh, disability discrimination. Black and Asian officers are, are far more likely than their white colleagues to raise grievances. And uh, in fact, black officers and staff are twice as likely as white colleagues to raise a grievance within the system. And they've come out saying there's, there's no, they, they have no levels, no trust in the system at all. And we've got some quotes from officers here. I really say that it's a system where the outcome is always rigged. Uh, it's a really difficult procedure with no one independent to turn to or to back the officer up. All part of the same circle of people. People are penalized for raising grievances. You know? The findings that you just described are very in line with the types of policing we're very familiar with here, where there's a whole, such a strong culture of that within police departments that we have a whole slang for it. It's called the thin blue line. Right. where police officers are essentially destined to defend each other and not out each other for extreme violence. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, we get these reports just like this one, um, where we find out not only that there are some extremely bad kind of acute cases of violence, but that those officers have been defended by every other officer they work with. One of the other findings from this report had to do with the way that uh, specifically rape investigations occur. And one of the things mm. that I read was that um, broken fridges and freezers were used to store rape kits. A lunchbox was found in the same fridge as rape samples, contaminating the evidence. And then when a fridge broke that was holding this kind of evidence, all the evidence had to be destroyed with the number of alleged rape cases just being dropped. So there is certainly the culture you were describing of a thin blue line, but there's also just a complete sense of negligence. It just goes to show how, how seriously they take cases of violence against women. They're not short of money, right? You know, my kid's school has to hold cake sales, right, to, to fix a hole in the roof. I don't see the Metropolitan Police doing this anytime, right? These guys have got some money. They can afford a new fridge. They can afford loads of new fridges. So just to, to have that level of neglect, that level of, of just dismissiveness against uh, what most of us would think of as, as 
one of the worst possible crimes. I think, oh, let's just stick it in the fridge. It might work, might not. Oh, if we lose a case, we lose a case, whatever. Doesn't really matter. It's only women, isn't it? And it's awful. It's absolutely awful. And this, and yes, you're right. And it's 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 part of this culture of that you see everywhere. You have these structures of power. So the Met is meant, from my understanding, to be held to account by the government's Home Secretary. Does it seem like there's clarity in how the Home Secretary could respond to this report? And I guess, you know, you, you mentioned that there's been reports for multiple decades on racism within the Met. Has there been any uh, orientation toward reforming and changing it? You look at this government and uh, I look at this government and I'm not filled with confidence when it comes to oh God, it's capacity, it's tying its own shoelaces, let alone governing a country. But um, the current state of the Metropolitan Police is not an inaccurate reflection on the state of this government's cruelty. You know, um, I don't hold a lot of hope for this government doing anything meaningful to reform, change, abolish, scrap, break up uh, the Metropolitan Police at all. And that said, that said it wouldn't be without precedent. Over in Northern Ireland, the IUC, the uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary, uh, so the police force of Northern Ireland, during what's known as the Troubles, right, the, the, when the large campaign of violence by the Republican IRA and the British state in opposition and paramilitary groups split off left, right and centre. The police force there was very strongly viewed as heavily aligned with the British state. When they launched it, when they first had it, there were Two and a half thousand Protestant officers and five hundred Catholic officers. Over the, and then all the Catholics were signed. Over subsequent years and decades, they tried big recruitment campaigns to bring more Catholics into the service to make it more representative of the communities, and they got up to like eight percent of Catholic recruits. For many reasons, it was uh, seen as unfit for purpose, and as part of the Good Friday Agreement, which eventually led to uh, the peace that we know today, as part of that landmark deal. The IUC was broken up in uh, 2001 with a guy called uh, Chris Patton, who was a Tory Conservative uh, Lord, charged with leading a commission into replacing it, um, into finding something that was a bit more representative of the communities. And the police service of Northern Ireland was set up. Uh, all the pictures of the Queen were taken away. Union flags were taken down. There were flashpoints which could be avoided, right? There are ways that this this uh, could be made smoother. And I'm not saying the police service of Northern Ireland is great. <laughs> so thankfully, I've had a very, very few dealings with them and don't intend to have any more. But it is an example of how a police service, a police force, which has been widely condemned, has been broken up with an emphasis on greater regionalization and greater representation and replaced with something that, to all intents and purposes, seems better. So your claim in your op-ed... Um, that we're talking about is that the Metropolitan Police should be disbanded and the funding it had relied on should be dispersed to other local government agencies or to re and or to redirect those funds to social services such as housing, mental health and addiction treatment and watch the crime rate plummet as a result. That's a demand we're very familiar with here in the Bay Area, in California and in the U.S. Um, it's been called the defund movement. Right. Defunding police also, of course, means not only taking money away from one thing, yeah. but using money for services that actually support communities. How has the defund movement resonated in Britain? I think that, I think there are people who have taken inspiration from it, for sure, right? If we can invest in these communities, we can help. 
if we can invest in mental health facilities, we can ease pressure on the National Health Service, on on the police itself, which is being called on to, to deal with situations that they shouldn't have to deal with because these, the people in the situation should have been cared for before they're arrested. <laughs> you know? we, we call the police in to, to deal with people in trouble because there aren't any other services. These are the police are the ones who are funded. They look at the mental health and the social provisions in, in Britain and, and, and on their knees. And I know, I know you guys in the US think that, that Britain's National Health Service and our social sector is, is wonderful. And it's, it is in many ways, right? But it's, it's broken and it's on its knees and people are desperate, uh, um, because of an emphasis on profit and power and policing. And we see the same patterns here where all the funding does exist. It's just going to the police and prisons. What we're talking about here is this funding existing and going in this particular case to fund the Metropolitan Police Department in London, in which James Brownsell in his latest op-ed has called on to be disbanded. Thank you so much for joining us today, James. Thank you very much for having me, Jesse. Absolute pleasure. And uh, I'd love to speak to you anytime. We'd love to have you back on. That's the voice of James Brownsell, a freelance journalist and former managing editor with The New Arab and an editor at Al Jazeera English. His latest piece is an op-ed for the Middle East Eye headlined, London's Metropolitan Police Must Be Disbanded. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by me, Jesse Strauss, and hosted by Kat Brooks, sometimes by me, Jesse Strauss. Theme music was composed by Steve Raskin from Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to hit us up about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or stream online at kpfa.org. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.